Thanks, Zach. I'll, let me pray. Father, we, uh, we ask please now that you might um, work in us by your Holy Spirit, uh, deep and powerful things, that you would please give us eyes to see, ears to hear what you have uh, revealed for us in these scriptures, help us to think deeply on them, uh, but more particularly let them transform and change us, we pray. Please do a work among us and in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to offer you a sermon title for this morning. Normally, we don't do a sermon title, but uh, I'm going to offer you a sermon title. And I want to suggest to you, as I do this, the sermon title itself is quite perverse. And I hope, I hope you all have a reaction against it. I expect a reaction because this is not a great one, right? So I expect it. All right, here we go. Here's the sermon title. Uh, this morning is all about how to gain the blessings of God. Oh, there you go. That's good. Nice. Well done. Uh, subtitle, what have you got to do to get the blessings of God in your life? Now, it's a kind of attractive title, though you, hopefully if you've been around with us for a long time, you find yourself cringing, but it's kind of attractive because who doesn't want to be blessed? Who doesn't want to have a bit of blessing in their life? Who doesn't want to have a life that uh, is rich and full? And finding out how, uh, isn't that a great thing to do? You know, if, gee, if you can give me the pathway to blessing, I'm on it. Let me, uh, let me know how to do it, give me, tell me what to do. That is a very attractive thing. Um, but note, keep noting that I'm offering that that title, that way of thinking this morning is perverse, there's something deeply wrong with it, but let's run with it, just bear with me for a short time. Um, how do we get blessed by God? What have we got to do? What do you think you have to do to get blessed by God? Um, now, I didn't just pull that kind of title out of thin air, it uh, kind of jumps out at you as you look through this last chapter of the book of Job. So we've been going through this book over this term and it's been uh, quite the journey and as you come to this last chapter, what you see is a number of repetitions actually, it's worth noting these things, but one of the things that's repeated is the blessings that comes upon Job. Have a look at chapter 42 verse 10. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. Twice as much. And then we get it repeated, verse 12... The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part and we get the list and it's twice as much as he had before, 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, yokes of oxen, 1,000 donkeys, seven sons, three daughters. The daughters are beautiful, we get their names, Jemima, Keziah and the third one, I'm keen to see one of you actually give that to your daughter this, uh, this coming year. There's so many girls being born, let's just use one of them with that name. But um, there's an extraordinary blessing comes upon this one and uh, he lives uh, 140 years, sees his children, their children, the fourth generation. So Job dies an old man full of years. There's an extraordinary richness of the blessing that God gives him. And so here's the thing for us, how do we get the same? Well, I don't mean the camels, but in modern terms, how do you find that kind of blessing? What have you got to do? Well, hence the title for this morning's sermon, how to get the blessing of God. Remember though, perverse, we'll see it. But what have we got to do? Well, let's notice, if you're going to get on this path, what you do is you notice what Job did. If you want to find blessing, well, what did Job do? See if we can actually tie those things to do. Let me show you what Job did. The first thing he did, chapter 42, verse 6, he repented. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Repent is, I'm going this way, thinking this way, and I realise I'm wrong, and I now go another way and think a different way. That's what repentance is. He turned around. He realised he's wrong. He went another way. Um, and he repents because, uh, well, God has spoken to him. Do you remember the context here? Uh, 
Last week, we went through the great speeches of God. Job had been asking for God to speak to him. He'd been unhappy that God was silent and hidden and distant and called on God finally to come and, come and um, answer Job's criticisms and critiques. God, you answer for yourself. What are you doing and why are you doing it? Well, finally, God turns up and he speaks. And what he has to say is life-changing. It's not at all what Job expected. Out of the storm, God comes and speaks. And he says, I will question you and you will answer me. I'm God, you're not. And pummels him with 77 rhetorical questions. Bang, bang. Questions that demonstrate the gulf that exists between God and humanity. An extraordinary piece of writing, speaking. And Job finally responds in chapter 42 and verse 5, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I was wrong, I take back my words, I repent. Now, just actually, by the by, he repents not of some secret sin. If you've been following us all the way through here, you'll, uh, you, you kind of might find this kind of... Um, it clangs a little bit, in that weren't Job's comforters saying the reason you're suffering is because of some secret sin in your life, if you repent of that sin, then God will bring blessing and isn't this saying, sounding like he sort of bought into that whole scheme? No, no, what he's repenting of is not some secret sin, he was right to keep thinking this had come upon him not because of his sin, because of some mystery, he was right, where he was wrong and where he repents is in his grief and anguish he said things that he ought not to have said, he misspoke, he presumed upon God, he repents of it. But second, the second thing, so first thing he does is repent, second thing he does is he embraces gracious generosity. In fact, he doesn't just embrace it, he is, he is compelled by God to embrace it. Let me show you this, look at verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now that phrase, you have not spoken the truth as my servant Job, is repeated as well, which tells you, uh, verse 8, it's an important concept, you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Uh, God is angry at them. Now, now what is this? Again, just put this in place before we get to the main thing. Um, uh, how is it that they've not spoken the truth and Job has? Well, if you boil both messages down, uh, though the friends said some true things, when you boil what they were saying down, the way they conceived of God and how He was functioning in the world was wrong. That is, suffering is because of sin. If you're, if you're suffering, it's because of some sin. God says, you got that wrong, even though you said some true things. Whereas Job, who said some wrong things, when you boil what he was saying down, he got God right. This was not because of sin, this is a mystery beyond me. Uh, he got that right. And Job, uh, God, um, God says, uh, he arbitrates and says, friends, wrong, Job, right. Um, and remember, actually, in the arbitration of God there, it just reminds us that the Bible has not bought into the modern notion that you can think whatever you like to think about God and as long as you're sincere, it'll be okay. No! God arbitrates between the sincere friends 
who were deeply committed to their theology and passionate about their theology and fought with other people over it. And Job says, God says, as sincerely as you held those views, you were wrong. And I'm angry with you. Just, it's a very great warning. Don't just assume that the God of the universe will be happy with whatever you think about him as long as you're sincere. You can be sincerely wrong and God will call that to account. Take care, therefore, to bring all your thoughts to the Word of God, to have them, that Word of God, shape your thinking, recalibrate it, correct your errors, so that more and more we align with how God actually is. That's our task together. But now, notice, notice, going back to the main thing, notice what God requires of Job. He requires him to pray for his friends for their forgiveness. Look at verse 8. Now, take seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. Think on this. Go to, your, go to the, my servant Job. I've determined to forgive you. I'm going to forgive you, says God. But I'm going to do it through the mediator role of Job so that you have to go to him and get him to pray for you for forgiveness. Now, do you see what that does? What it does for the friends? Picture yourself here. You've had months of arguing with Job and telling him that he's wrong and getting angry and angrier and saying, you've misunderstood God, it's all Job, you're in a mess, you're a si and now you're told you're wrong, and you have to go to the one you've been arguing with and say, forgive me and pray for me. How does that make you feel? <laughs> How does it make you feel? Humiliated, doesn't it? Isn't it humiliating? Your wife was right all along. <laughs> isn't it, it's a powerfully good thing to go through though, isn't it? Um, but how does it make Job feel? What's got to happen for Job? He's been in this debate for months in the midst of his grief and his anguish, his, his health is gone, he's in distress, he's not sleeping and he's got friends, friends who are meant to comfort him, who have been attacking him, arguing with him, uh, criticising him, condemning him in his misery and grief. What do you think he wants to pray for to God about them for? Justice, yes, that God gives them what they deserve. But God says to Job, no, 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 I've determined to forgive them and I want you to pray for their forgiveness. I want you to embrace an attitude of loving your enemies, just like Jesus says we ought to. I want you to be someone who is like me, full of grace and compassion for those that are hostile towards you. Do you see the two things that Job does or is brought to do? He, he is brought to repentance and he is he's brought to embrace grace towards those that he should otherwise be hostile towards. He's brought to be gracious to others, generous. And then, verse 10, God blesses him. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. So the message to us is... If you want the blessing of God in your life, you need to do two things, repent and pray.
pray for those around you for their forgiveness. Bang! Blessing will be yours. Is that the message? Now, how do you know it's not? Because the whole point of the book is at odds with that message, isn't it? What has this book been about? The whole book, this is, this is why it matters actually to read the Bible in context, to actually not just pull out a verse here and there, but actually see the sweep of the Bible and read the whole thing that's going on. That's why we do a practice of reading through books and not just doing verses. But, but what's going on in this whole book? The whole book has been about whether God is worth adoring, serving, honouring, loving, even if you don't get anything from Him. That's one of the big messages of the book. This book has not been about how to get blessings from God. It's been almost the entirely reverse. It's been about the fact that we are right to honour the God of the universe because of who He is, not because of what we get from Him. Do you remember how the book starts? In the courtroom scene of heaven... God says to Satan, the accuser, have you seen my servant Job? There's no one like him, blameless and righteous. And Satan brings the accusation and says, he only serves you because you give him lots of good things. If you take away those things, he'll curse you and die. Now that accusation, remember all those weeks ago, that accusation has two barbs. One is it's a barb towards Job to say his faith is insincere. But the other one, it's a barb towards God, which says, you know what, God, you're not that worthy of people's praise. They only love you because of what you give them. If you didn't give them anything, no one would be interested in you. You're not that great. That's the accusation. And this whole book, all the events that occur and are reported for us, happen to prove Satan wrong. And so Job's repentance at the end of the book, it's not just a step on a path back to getting blessing again. That's not what it's about. And to show it, let me look, dig into his response again a little more carefully now. Come and have a look at chapter 42, verse 1. Let's go through it more closely. Then Job replied to the Lord, let's take it verse 2. I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You are God and I am not. The universe runs by your will, not mine. Whatever you choose to have happen will happen and there's no power in the universe, no satanic force, there's nothing can thwart what you do. If you will it, it will happen. You are God, I am not. And actually just notice verse 11 how it reinforces again the idea that all that occurs to Job, all that happens to Job is by the Lord's hand, over all the trouble that the Lord had brought on him. Not Satan, but the Lord had brought... Satan is the Lord's Satan. He is merely a tool in the hands of a sovereign God. And Job has come to the realisation again that you are God, I am not. Verse 3... You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. What is Job saying here? He is saying that he is not just humbled by the raw power of God, though he was, I spoke of things that I just had no comprehension of, which is common in our world. 
But more than that, I, I, I spoke of things too wonderful for me to know. Just pause on that. I spoke of things too wonderful for me to know. Reflect with me. In the speeches of God, what were the wonderful things that were mentioned there? Did you notice that? Now, I suspect many of us, well, it's tempting to kind of go through those chapters and not notice anything wonderful at all, just feel pummeled and battered. But Job goes, hearing you hit me with question after question actually made me see things too wonderful to understand. Wonderful, beautiful. Give me your thoughts. What were the things that were wonderful in the speeches of God? God made the world in all its intricacy and beauty and complexity. God made that in all its detail. Yep. What else was wonderful? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the way in which God was intimately involved in every creature's life, in a sense, wasn't it? It was the vast spars, you know, the stars, the heavens, the lightning, the thunder. But also he was with every creature as it gave birth, numbering the months. God was intimately involved in every moment. What else was wonderful? Vote on that one. Who found that wonderful? <laughs> there is no anything. There is something wonderful there, isn't it? That, that, that the things that some things that look crazy, but God has given a special thing to, and it's beautiful and it's yeah, yeah, yeah. There's one that I want you to get that you haven't got yet. Oh, I love you, brother. Have a look at chapter 40. He knows how to deal with evil. He knows how to deal with evil. Have a look at chapter 40, verse 9. Do you have an arm like God, God's arm? Can your voice thunder like His, that adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself with honour and majesty and do what? Think with me. God says, are you like me, Job? The God of glory and majesty and honour... Well, you clothe yourself in those things and do what you ought to do if you're a glorious God. What glorious things do glorious gods do? Verse 11, 12, 13. They destroy evil. The thing that makes, the thing that is wonderful, wonderfully glorious about God is that He can deal with evil. He alone knows how to manage evil. He alone is the one who can control evil and bend it to his purposes and eradicate evil so it never comes back again. This is what it means for God to be glorious, that he's the one we can trust in the context of evil. Because like he controls creation, he controls... And we, we of all people know the glory of God in that because we've seen the cross. The cross of Christ, the event that just... No mind could ever, no human mind could ever have conceived of a way to deal with evil like God dealt with evil on that day. Where he destroys evil, pays the debt, destroys Satan, destroys death, and makes it possible for sinners, evil people like us, to be forgiven, never to sin again, into a new creation. Who could ever have conceived what? Wonderful. Too wonderful to ever imagine. 
You know, verse 5 of chapter 42. My eyes have heard, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He had a truth about God he picked up in the school playground. He had a truth about God that people throw around and talk about in the pub and sort of this is the way to... He'd heard these things, but now he's actually seen the living God and it's just changed everything for him. As it will if you open yourself up to listen to the true God speak. If you get past all the... Um, if you get past all the playground myths and the rumours and the media thoughts about God and how He really is and so on, if you actually open yourself up to listen to what God is really like, you'll have your mind blown. You'll see things that you never imagined. You'll be truly humbled and you'll be brought to bow the knee in awe. Now, see, this is the great end of the book and notice this, Satan's not there. Do you notice this? He's not there because he was wrong. He was wrong about Job and he was wrong about God. Job had the faith to stand by God through all his sufferings. He struggled, he has his ups and downs. He said some things that he ought not to have said, but he basically, he continued to press on and persevere and stood by his God. And he now shows, he now sees, he now feels the truth about who God is. The God of wonder, glory, majesty, beauty, greatness. And get this, he sees all of that without receiving any blessings. That's the book. He is brought to see all of that and to act graciously towards his friends without ever once receiving a blessing to cajole him into it. He is still sitting on the dust heap of his house, with the grief of the loss all around him, his health is shattered, and he sees the truth about God, and in the midst of seeing the truth, without anything from God, he goes, you're God. And I, I'm in awe and wonder of you. It is enough that I've seen God. It's driven home because he prays for his enemies, he embraces grace towards his friends at the prompting of his God, who is full of grace, with no thought to what he might gain by doing it. Do you see what he's learned? God owes us nothing. We are his servants. It's his world, not ours. He's at the centre. We are here to serve him. We wait on Him, He doesn't wait on us. And He gets all of that, not because He gets something from God. So, why the blessing at the end? Doesn't that undo the whole point? And I've, I've had conversations with a bunch of you through this last couple of weeks. And I've read books who actually wrestle with this same question as well. Um, 
Doesn't this, you know, if the whole point is about God is God and we honour and adore God for who He is without getting things from Him, then doesn't the fact that suddenly God gives a whole bunch of stuff to Job at the end undo that whole message? Wouldn't it have been better for God just to leave Him in the pit of despair, still adoring His God? Wouldn't that have been a better way to finish the book? Yes. But here we have a book that ends with this Job swimming in blessing again. Why the blessing? Because although God is free to do whatever He wants in His world, what He loves to do is bless. Because that's who He is. That's the message. This book is about God and the greatness of who God is. It's not about Job. Though it is about Job and the purification of his faith and the lesson that is to us and so on. But what we learn is that it's not about him. It's about God who is glorious and majestic, who has the power to control evil and manage evil and does all of that in his free sovereign power who can't be thwarted for the purposes of bringing blessing. Because that's the kind of God he is. He gives because that's who he is. The hero here is God. Not anything Job has done. Do you see what God does with the friends? The friends have spoken wrongly about Job, about God, and God is right to, to, he's angry with them, he ought to destroy them, as he does with sinners who are unrepented, but in his grace and kindness, he brings forgiveness to them, because that's who God is, that's the way God is. What does he do with Job? He humbles him, he gives him an insight into who he is, and brings him to be a forgiving person like God is. And God does all of this because that's what makes Him glorious. At the risk of taking a little bit of time, come back with me to Exodus 33. Keep, keep a finger there in Job. Let me try and do this quickly. Moses, in verse 18 says to God, show me your glory, show me your glory, you're a glorious God, show it to me. Now, what might you expect to see if God was going to show His glory, what makes Him great? You might expect to see a pyrotechnic display, lightning, thunder, storm, tidal wave, power. God shows His glory to Moses and it's there in verse 6. He passes in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving the wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He is a God of justice but He's a God of compassion and love and mercy and grace. That's who God is. You heard the reading, you heard the reading from James chapter 5. What do we learn from Job? His perseverance and God's compassion and mercy. That's who God is. You know, when this God of compassion and mercy and justice, who won't leave sins unpunished, when you see that God turn up in our world, what do you expect? When He takes on flesh and becomes a man amongst us, what do you think He'll look like? Have a look with me at John chapter 1. Let's race through this. Come to John 1. 
If God were to become a man and live amongst us, which He does 2,000 years ago, what do you expect to see that man be like? Well, have a look at verse 14. The Word became flesh. God, the Word, became, took on human flesh, became a man. We have seen His glory. We've seen the glory of God. What's the glory of God? The, one, the only Son who comes from the Father full of grace and truth. Because that's what makes God glorious. Grace and truth. And so what does the gracious, glorious God come to do? The God who is committed to justice and righteousness, He comes to give His own life to pay our debt, to meet the need of justice and yet pay it in such a way on the cross that forgiveness and love and compassion and mercy can flood out to the world so that sinners like us can know the blessing of God. Let me offer some pastoral observations and then apply, that, apply this to three different groups amongst us. Some pastoral observations. Humans have a problem. We have deeply serious problems as humans. I know this is not inspirational, it's not very positive, but you need to hear this one out. Humans are deeply perverse creatures. In every interaction with God, we have a tendency to make it about us. There's this gravity in us that just turns everything in on us. When we don't see Him acting in the world like we expect Him to see Him acting, we, we say to ourselves, how dare He not do what we ought to, He ought to do? But when we do see Him active in the world, when we do see Him doing something in the world by perhaps giving blessing, we find ourselves saying, well, He ought to have. Why didn't He do it sooner? When he doesn't answer our prayers, we find ourselves saying, what's wrong with God? How come God is so distant and absent from me? But when he does answer our prayers, we say, finally. And when he declares that he will forgive people and be compassionate, mercy and grace to people, we find ourselves saying, gee, what does that say about how special we must be? We turn the whole thing to be about us again. The fact that he has forgiven us, well, that's clearly because we're very forgivable. There's this, at every point, we make it about ourselves because there's a sin nature in us that means humans are born with us at the centre, needing to be at the centre, wanting everything about us at the centre. It is ever-present in our lives. Now, all of this creates a massive problem. God is holy and just. He must punish sin and evil. That's what makes Him glorious. We rightly deserve His punishment. But God is a God of grace, compassion and mercy who longs to bless. That's who He is. Now how? How can He bless evil sinners? How can He do that? By the mind-blowing act of dying for us. Coming into our world as one of us and putting himself at our mercy, humbling himself to death, even death on a cross. And by that act, he shows that we owe him a debt, he shows how serious that debt is, 
that it requires death. And yet he shows how loving he is because he pays for it, for us. Which humbles those who see it truly and makes it possible for him to pour out grace upon us in a way that then doesn't pervert us as he pours grace us. Because the problem is that the person who carries sin around them in a way that is foreground, the, the sin that's not dealt with, the, the sin that's not been undone by the Holy Spirit of God in our lives, when blessing comes upon us like that, it, it pollutes our relation, it corrupts us. And so God, in his desire to bless us, gives us the book of Job. The lessons of Job. You see, what happened with Job didn't just happen to teach Job something, it happened, Job, God took Job through that to exalt himself, to purify Job's faith and to teach us a deeply, deeply important lesson. That God is God, his purposes cannot be thwarted, He will deal with evil. He is worthy of our adoration, praise, apart from what He gives us. And it's not about us. Let me apply this into three different groups amongst us. We're almost there. I want to suggest there's three kinds of people sitting in the room at the moment and uh, I want to speak to each of you briefly. There are those amongst us who aren't Christians, who aren't followers of Christ, you know you're not, you, you, you're still puzzling about these things perhaps or you've come along with a friend. Can I just, can I speak to you for a moment? It's great to have you with us, really wonderful. Um, uh, I was where you are uh, many years ago and so glad that God took me on the journey He took me on and I trust you will be open to the journey He takes you on. But can I say to you, to come back to God, to come to God, you come to God by repenting, by realising you were wrong about God, you need to turn, change and realise he is who he says he is in the Bible, not who you imagine him to be. And the biggest lesson that comes in realizing that God is God is that it's not about you. You are unworthy. There is nothing you can do to earn his favor and his blessing. Uh, no work, no going to, ch- there's nothing you can do to earn his favor. You deserve condemnation. That is a hard lesson to learn. But it's the truth. But here's the wonderful news. Because of who God is, He will bless you and forgive you and richly give Himself to you if you would but just turn and come back to Him, like Job did. Humbled, ready to see that you're unworthy and your only hope is His grace and kindness, given freely, not because you deserve it. But if you come to that point in your life, this God delights to show mercy. He'll embrace you as the prodigal comes back to the Father. Come back. It's only by grace, not works, that you can be saved. Come back. Let me give you the second group I want to talk to. It's the almost a Christian. It's the almost a Christian. There'll be people amongst us today, as there are in churches across the world, who see themselves as Christians, but really aren't actually Christians are almost Christians and I want to speak to you because there'll be some amongst us. The Bible warns us repeatedly that not everyone who says Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of God. 
Bible warns us repeatedly, not everyone who thinks they're converted and saved in a, will be saved. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. Question for you today is, how do you know if you're that one? Because it would break our hearts to have you stand before God on the last day thinking you are okay and to have God say, depart from me, I never knew you. How do you know if you're an almost Christian and not a real one? Well, there's a number of ways to test that. One of them is your response to suffering. What is your attitude towards God in suffering? If you have a sense that God ought never bring suffering into my life, that if He does, He's doing something wrong, if He allows suffering in this world, it's unfair of Him, it's wrong of Him, then you're an almost a Christian, not a Christian. You have not been on the journey that Job's been on to be brought to see the truth about who God is. Or if you find yourself praying and God lets you down or seems, you think of God as letting you down, not answering the prayers the way you ought, you think He ought, you feel like He's wronged you, then you're an almost a Christian, not a real Christian. And this, you must deal with this. You must repent. Yes, God does bless, but the almost a Christian expects that He will, demands that He wills, finds the conditions and fulfills them and then expects it to happen. Take great care. It's so dangerous in our day and age because modern churches are full of, uh, in fact, teaching this very thing. That, that if you come to God and do these certain things, then you'll just become healthy and rich and, and your life will be an extraordinary triumph and success and it just corrupts people in their relationship with God. It seems so expiring, exciting, but it corrupts everything about your relationship with God. If you've been embracing that, Repent come out from under it, learn the lessons of the book of Job, though it costs you all you have, find wisdom like Job found it. The almost a Christian. And finally, the born-again believer. There are many of you amongst us and it's a great delight to be in fellowship with you. How do you know if you're the born-again believer and not the almost a Christian? Well, here's the thing, you'll find yourself reading and hearing about Job 38, 39, 40, 41, the great speeches of God, you'll find yourself reading and hearing that and going, this God is amazing, He is too wonderful to understand. You'll find yourself thrilling to the truth about God being vastly above us, being God, not us. You'll find yourself captured by the sense that He's at the centre, not me, no one comes to that except by the Spirit of God. That's evidence that the God is touching your life. You don't get that by human sin. And if you find yourself sitting there wanting to be what Job was, wanting to be in the place that Job was, praying that God by His strength might bring you to that humility and that insight, if you find yourself, you may not be there yet, but you want to have your faith purified, that's evidence the Spirit of God has got you. If you find yourself very aware that it's only by His grace and not your merits that you are saved, that's evidence the Holy Spirit has you, you're born again believer. You don't get that apart from the Spirit of God. Keep in step with all of that. But let me offer this final couple of thoughts. If you're a born again believer, then the God that you are in relationship is the God of Job. The God who longs to bless. James chapter 5, one of the only references to Job, Job in the New Testament Remember the patience of Job. What did Job learn? 
that God is compassionate. He is merciful. He wants to bless you, born-again believer. He died to bring you blessing. That's who He is. And His great purpose for you is blessing, not because you, are, you, you merit it, not because you're worthy of it, but because God is gracious. I want to encourage you, particularly if you're going through all kinds of grief, pain and loss and tragedy, and you find yourself going, where is God in the midst of this? Remember Job. He persevered and he learned that God is compassionate and merciful. God is the God who is determined to bless you. He will bless you. Not because you deserve to, but because he is good. Like Job, you'll be going through things you don't understand. Why? Why is this happening to me? You won't know. But God intends to bless you. Not necessarily in this life. Don't get caught there. But he will bring you blessing. And the journey you're going through, it won't always be because of sin. It won't be because you've done some terrible sin that God's now judging you for it. It's because there'll be purposes beyond your comprehension. There'll be things that are going on in the universe you have no clue about. And God will be at work and he promises and Job teaches us that God will work for good for everyone who loves him and is called according to his purpose. God is working for your good. And you know that better than Job because we've seen the cross. We've seen God who is the God of majestic, glory, majesty, who, who, is, who has defeated evil in the cross at such a price to himself, you know that he is good. You know, I, I, I thought, uh, we, we, God works in ways we do not expect. Did you hear that from Tammy? God works in ways you just don't expect. Because God is not our God. He's not owned by us. He's free. So what do we do in the response to all of this? We cling to Him. We trust Him. We bow before Him. We follow Him. Because He will bring you home. In just a short time. He'll bring you to Himself. And shower you with blessing. For all eternity. Because that's who God is. Let's pray. Oh, no, let's not do that. Let's not pray. What a dreadful thing to say. Take a moment to reflect. Just pause. And just think, what do I do with this? Am I, am I not a Christian this morning and I need to reflect? Am I an almost a Christian? Am I born? Where do you sit? How do you respond? Take some time to think. And I want to encourage you to see how important this is. This thing that's about to happen. Because these guys help us realise that God's not just a boss that you are employed by. He's a heavenly father that we adore. And so we praise him together. Let's do that.